Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. If people are thinking of rural Oregon and comparing it to rural Virginia or rural Pennsylvania, I, I've been in both places and I have to stop people. It is This is not rural Virginia. Um, this is a, a very different type of rural. This is hours from a city, hours from a mall. Um, people live, I mean, you could stand on your front porch and scream and no one would hear you. And if someone heard you, they'd probably still leave you alone because it's that kind of community where people want to go and they want to get off the grid. You know, they want to be away from other people, other humans, noise, traffic, pollution, the government. There's a lot of different reasons why people move out here, but there's nobody there. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. Today, federal cannabis reporter Natalie Fertig on how a remote outpost in southern Oregon, a state with some of the friendliest weed laws in the nation, has been overrun by international cartels and gun-toting outlaw farmers. How its illegal market has become an area of intimidation for local residents and why all this has happened in the first place. So at the beginning of November uh, last year, I went to this very rural part of Southern Oregon and I talked to a lot of people who live there about their experiences with illicit cannabis farmers around them and in their community. And I'm Natalie, I'm the reporter. Hi Natalie, nice to meet you. So I turn on the phone recorder on my phone. Oh really? Is that okay? Fine. Okay. So I went to Gary Longnecker's home Gary is a former Marine and a former firefighter. He moved to Oregon close to 30 years ago to retire. And Gary's house really is sort of the center of this. You know, his house is in this cluster of trees, and it's very cute, and it's kind of a little hippie-ish in some ways, that kind of Oregon, like, beads and chimes hanging. And, you know, he's he's got this really nice yard and this home where he planned to retire. Um, And then you get to the property line and it's just huge cannabis farms. And while we were standing there looking at this farm, um, I was with a couple other people who are also kind of involved in trying to solve the Southern Oregon cannabis problem. And, you know, one of them was taking pictures. Some people were walking around and pointing things out to each other. And suddenly we started hearing these gunshots. Um, Gary's partner, BJ, was very flustered. And she kept saying, oh, shit. I think we should do whatever we need to do to get there. This is not... And, you know, we hurried away from the area. Yeah, my phone's picking this up. Shit, they are right there, dude. Coming from right there. Gary told me as we were walking away, he said... So that's, that's called intimidation. This is intimidation. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad that they're reinforcing what I've been trying to tell you. Yep. <laughs> is this the way we head back? Okay. Um, and he'd been telling me earlier in the day that this is the kind of thing that happened. That he hears gunshots in the middle of the night. So this isn't a new thing, but 
the guns we're hearing now is a new thing because that's them intimidating all of us neighbors to keep out of their uh, out of their face. You know? But Gary's story was very common from what I heard the week that I was in Cave Junction and in Grants Pass. A lot of people had a story either about them or somebody that they knew who had been had been facing different types of intimidation. And these are illegal cannabis farms. These are illegal cannabis farms. Well, I should say there's no database of illegal cannabis farms. Um, there's only a database of legal cannabis farms. And I can't find them in the legal database. So that is how we are coming to the conclusion that they are unlicensed farms. <laughs> I should add that there are people who take this story and make both arguments for it. Legalizing or okay, we shouldn't legalize because look what happens to a state when you legalize. And I think one of the biggest problems with saying, hey, let's turn back the clock is that there are now people who have businesses and have invested their life savings into licensed cannabis, you know, industry. And it is kind of a question of how do you put the cat back in the bag? Even though, yeah, if cannabis wasn't legal in Southern Oregon, this problem might be a bit different. And so why are you in Oregon in the first place? Can you just kind of take me back to Oregon's transformation to one of the states with the most number of outlaw cannabis farmers, which is surprising because medical marijuana became legal in Oregon in 1990 and cannabis cultivation was legal in 2014. So it's not the state you'd expect this to be happening in, right? Right. Well, you have to remember that pre-1990, people were, were growing cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually went and met with a, a longtime cannabis grower when I was in uh, the Cave Junction area who'd moved there in you know, the 70s and the 80s to grow weed there. And you know he's been growing weed illegally for a very long time there. Um, he moved into the legal market once it became legal, but he was growing weed before any of these laws were passed. So Oregon and Northern California, you know, everyone's heard of the Humboldt Triangle or the Emerald Triangle out there, Humboldt County and Mendocino County, where they've been growing a lot of weed also since the 60s and 70s. Mm. Southern Oregon's the same way. There's been a lot of weed grown there. Um, Like I said before, there's way more trees than there are people. There's a lot of places for cannabis to be hidden up in the mountains, in the public lands, in national forests, um, maybe somebody's 20-acre, you know, parcel of land that they don't go back and check the, like, back two acres in the corner that are all forested all the time. You know, someone might sneak on and and plant some cannabis bushes there. But what's really changed in the last two years is that there are now unlicensed cannabis farmers that are just right on the main roads. So you're driving around, you know, these, it's still a, a very rural community, but in some of the areas where you see more houses along one road, um, you'll see more hoop houses than you see anything else. Um, it's similar to going to Kansas and seeing cornfields or, you know, I'm from Washington state. We have areas where you drive down the road and there's just apple farm after apple farm. And it felt like that in Southern Oregon. I've actually never seen anything like it as a cannabis reporter. Mm. And there's no way of telling half the time which of these are legal and which of them are not. But there's no way that that many cannabis farms can exist on one road and all be licensed. And you look at some of them and they're trying very hard to hide what they're doing. Mm -hmm. The police that I've talked to have said you can kind of tell from 
the way that the farm is set up, but they can't go on that property without knowing for sure that that's an unlicensed farm, both from cannabis and unlicensed in hemp. And that's where it became more complicated two years ago is that Oregon also really strongly embraced hemp cultivation. And what is the difference between hemp and cannabis? Hemp is federally legal, and it is cannabis that has less than 0.3% THC. Mm. Marijuana is federally illegal, and it's cannabis that has more than 0.3% THC. So it's the same plant. It's the thing that's inside of it that you don't know if the cannabis plant possesses that much THC until you test it. Mm. And so it's also just not illegal to grow you know, hemp, just like you can grow carrots in your yard. You don't need to get a license to grow a personal crop of carrots. Same thing with hemp. And it looks the same from the outside. And it looks the same from the outside. So police are driving around going, well, that place looks real sketchy. um, And those people don't seem up to any good, but we can't just go on their property anymore because we see cannabis plants from afar. This is the easiest Trojan horse ever. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of is. And so that's been the big problem. Law enforcement has not been able to crack down on the early offenders who kind of snuck in with this Trojan horse. And so word word got out that this is a place you can go and you're probably not going to get busted. And if you do, just have a couple different farms and they've, they're only going to have the bandwidth and the manpower to maybe bust one of them. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that there's a whole bunch of hemp growers in Southern Oregon illegally growing weed. There are some. Um, There are definitely some growers that are using hemp licenses as a cover to just straight up grow marijuana. But more than that, it's made it really complicated for law enforcement to know who is licensed and who is not. And so, you know, there's only a few deputies. They've got to deal with a lot of other things, not just cannabis and going through all of the databases to figure out, wait, okay, so this one is at this address. Okay, it's not in the cannabis database. Okay, wait, check the hemp database. Okay, well, it had a hemp license a couple years ago. Does it still have a hemp license? Okay, you know, there's it's a lot of work that they have to go through to sort of suss this out. <laughs> I didn't do very well in economics in college, so maybe take this with a grain of salt, but it's a little confounding to me that a state that has a big legal market would also have a really big illicit market. In economics, I feel like I learned the opposite would be true, that once something is legalized, it devalues the illegal. Why is this happening here? So it's happening because Oregon is one of 50 states. Oregonians are buying legal wheat because the illicit market can't compete overly compete with how cheap weed is in Oregon. It's the cheapest state in the country for selling weed. Hmm. They're growing the weed in Oregon because the legality of cannabis, the two different forms of it that I've that I've talked about, give it cover. And then the rural atmosphere gives them cover. And the lack of law enforcement means they're, they're probably not going to get busted. And then they ship it out of the state. There's Only 19 states, well, 18 plus the District of Columbia, have legalized cannabis. And of those, some still aren't even selling it yet. New York City has nobody legally selling adult-use cannabis right now, even though New York has legalized weed. It takes a while to get that up and running. So if you're buying cannabis on the streets of New York, it had to be grown somewhere. And that somewhere, oftentimes, is Southern Oregon. Where does all this go from here? It's honestly hard to say. Um, As a reporter, I've rarely been in a situation where it just seemed deeply overwhelming 
Mm-hmm. And that's, it really did feel just absolutely overwhelming down there. I mean, just thinking about how many law enforcement officers they have in Josephine County and how many weed farms I drove by. Mm. Like they, if they, if that's all they did all year long, they'd never get them all. And that's kind of, you know, you just start thinking how in the world are they going to crack down on all of this? Um, You know, everyone tends to agree that they need more money. So the state actually called a special session and um, put $20 million into law enforcement for this and $5 million into, uh, you know, there's a lot of water being stolen, which is a really big deal somewhere like Southern Oregon, where everyone is using well water and river water. Um, You know, there's no city water supply. So um, there's a lot of water theft. And so $5 million are also going to that, which if you can manage to cut off water access to a cannabis farm, you're going to kneecap it. So that $25 million will help, but most people say it's not enough. Um, There's definitely discussion of what should or could the federal government be doing. Right. I I talked to a couple experts who told me that they really think that long-term federal legalization is the only way that this will end. That but that even then it would take a while. Yeah, I mean how likely is federal legalization? That's not anytime soon, right? You know, there, you know, Senator Schumer has said that he wants it to be soon, but, you know, I know that he does not have all the votes to pass his bill. He's got a a lot of wants. (laughs) Yeah, he's got a lot of wants. And, you know, it's been a rocky going so far on a lot of those wants. So I wouldn't put um, a a really high likelihood of cannabis legalization passing in this Congress. And, you know, if Republicans happen to take back one or both of the chambers next Congress, that chance goes uh, down even further. So it, you know, it's probably going to be a bit. And even then, you know, it, it took a lot of people compare this to the end of alcohol prohibition. And it, it did, was not immediate that moonshiners all dissipated and Budweiser was everywhere. You know, it took time for those markets to switch over for legal beer to become accessible and cheap enough to put illegal beer out of business. Like you said, it's economics, pure and simple. And right now, it's much cheaper for someone to grow weed in southern Oregon and then sell it in Philadelphia or Chicago or New York City for half the price of, even in some places like Chicago, of legal weed that is still very expensive because of different regulations in the state of Illinois. Um, it's still cheaper for the illicit market to operate in a lot of places in this country. There's only a few states where the legal market has taken over the majority. And that's just supply and demand. It's supply and demand and it's taxes and it's regulations. And it will take a long time for that to change. But as long as there are states that have not legalized cannabis, there are going to be people who will illegally grow cannabis and sell it there. That's kind of the bottom line of what every single person I've talked to about this has told me. Natalie Fertig, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Also today, the Senate Help Committee voted 13-8 on Thursday to advance Robert Califf's nomination to head the Food and Drug Administration, putting the Biden administration one step closer to installing a permanent leader at an agency critical to the pandemic response. 
Two senators who caucus with Democrats opposed the nomination, as did six Republicans. And Buckingham Palace confirmed on Thursday that Prince Andrew, the Queen's second son, will lose his military affiliations and royal titles as he faces the prospect of a sexual assault civil trial in the United States. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. Dispatch's senior editor is Raghu Madhavalan, and our senior producer is Jenny Ament. We're taking Monday off in observance of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but we'll be back with an episode on Tuesday. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>